All right. The Apostle Paul coming in hot. Some stuff to talk about today. If you've been with us the last several Sundays, four, five, six Sundays, I think the lectionary readings have given us this healthy dose of uh, gospel readings and teachings from Jesus that have basically been uh, all the same teaching, and it's pretty much this. Um, Don't be so proud of yourself. Amen? Don't take yourself so seriously. Take the gospel seriously, but maybe not yourself. Because God is uh, what we saw in these gospel readings and teachings of Jesus over the last uh, four or five weeks, six weeks, I can't remember, um, is this frustrating mercy of God, this frustrating benevolence of God, this frustrating grace of God that just, again, story after story, parable after parable, just keeps letting people into the kingdom of God. And uh, those who felt like they had earned their way in were frustrated. Uh, This has really been the theme of the last several Sundays. And then uh, this reading from Philippians chapter 3 is such a powerful uh, piece from the Apostle Paul. And it, it begins with this phrase, Uh, If anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. So this is where it begins. This begins this uh, very well-known section from this letter from the Apostle Paul. Uh, And it is a section, just to warn you, about accomplishments, about achievements, um, and their apparent value, and about how he went down the hard road of letting those things fall to the side and to replace them with something else, or in this case, someone else. And we'll get back to that word flesh in a moment because it's a very, very important uh, word in the whole story. Now, there's some background here. If I have confidence in the flesh, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. It sounds very, uh, it's like body positivity sort of stuff, doesn't it? Like, if anyone looks in the mirror and is really confident it's me, is what it sounds like. But what he's getting at is something quite different. Let me give you some background. I don't know if this will be boring to you or not. I was kind of bored typing it, but it is important to know. Uh, when, when we read these letters in the New Testament, it is important to remember that though the Bible as a whole is certainly for us, We can benefit from it, we read it, we can apply these things to our faith, animate our lives. These sorts of things remind us that the Bible was not originally written to us. It may be for us, but it was not written to us. Paul is not writing to an imaginary community. He's writing to real people in the real city of Philippi, in a real church, and he's talking about real situations. And oftentimes you have to do the backstory and the homework on what's going on, but what's happening is... Uh, when Paul says, if, I have reason, if anyone has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more, we're entering this very in-house conversation between Paul and the people who made up this church. And the topic is very, very interesting. He was addressing this real debate that was going on at the time, this debate around whether or not a Gentile, which is the Jewish word for everybody that isn't Jewish, Uh, this debate around whether or not a Gentile needed to become Jewish before they could become a follower of Jesus. It seems silly, doesn't it? But at the time, this was one of the first real big controversies um, that the church had to deal with. How do we let outsiders in? Do they need to first become Jewish? And you're probably thinking, are we talking about Christianity here? But the, the truth is, for a long time, the church, as we call it today, was really just made up of Jewish people. It was a Christianity was really seen as a Jewish sect within the Jewish tradition. 
And so there was some confusion over whether or not this growing attraction of outsiders, these newcomers, needed to go through the rites and rituals of the things that defined the Jewish spirit, the Jewish mindset, the Jewish community before they become a follower of Christ. See, this is boring, isn't it? Are you bored? I was bored typing it, Uh, maybe because I say these things all the time. Uh, But as the church saw more and more Gentiles entering its spaces for worship and community, what was happening is that some, not all, but some who were Jewish by birth or by conversion struggled uh, with what the initiation protocols should be if they wanted to join. And much of the focus had to do with observing the Jewish law, the Torah. And more specifically, what Paul is addressing in this letter is the very comfortable public conversation of circumcision. Not a fun activity for grown adults, okay? That's what's at the center of this debate, was whether or not people had to go through that before they could become followers of Jesus. And apparently there were groups of people who wanted newcomers, who were essentially outsiders, to go through with these initiation rites in order to garner a proper welcome and acceptance into the church. And as you can guess, Paul was not happy about it. And so he begins this section, and I say it again, by saying, hey, if anybody has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. And then Paul kind of lays out his resume, his pedigree. And I have a slide here with just the things that he talks about. He starts by saying, I don't know why I'm laughing at this, uh, circumcised on the eighth day. Now, this was according to Jewish law. So again, he's just let it, he's setting the table out. I had that done as well. Of the tribe of Benjamin, he says, often seen as the most elite and favorable tribe. This is Paul sort of name dropping. You know, of all the 12 tribes, I was in Benjamin. I always say Benjamin, but there's no R there. It's Benjamin. Okay. Uh, he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, this most certainly means that he spoke Hebrew. We see this in the book of Acts. He speaks Hebrew in front of a council, and they all get silent because they're like, he's speaking Hebrew. And you're like, well, yeah, but Hebrew at the time of Paul's life was a dying or dead language. This was a, a skill that not many people had. And so Paul's like, I even speak the language, by the way. And then he says he's a Pharisee. This is an elite cohort of scholars and interpreters of the scriptures. Whatever your church told you growing up about Pharisees is probably wrong. Jesus did not hate Pharisees. There were some Pharisees that Jesus was very close with. Uh, By all accounts, a Pharisee buried Jesus or helped get him off the cross and get him to the tomb. Uh, This is a a lie that Jesus hated these people. There were some that didn't like him. There were some that would push back on him. There were some that that would question him and he would get into debates with them. But uh, these are not the people that he was frustrated with. Uh, The Sadducees, on the other hand, but that's a different story. But Paul is saying, I'm one of these top-tier scholars of the Bible. And then he goes further and says, oh, and when it came to the early movements of Jesus, I was there to stop it. I was a persecutor, uh, is the phrase he uses. And then he says, when it comes to the Jewish law, righteous, perfect, flawless, he says. I mean, this is like, really? Were you really flawless? But he says a pious life was a life that he has lived. 
And so this list of, is a showing of things that Paul was both born into, things that he has no control over. He's Jewish by birth. Um, he's of a certain tribe. He was raised to speak a certain language. And then also things that he accomplished, these achievements, becoming a Pharisee, of leading a kind of assault on the early movements of Jesus, and also living a blameless and pious life. These are all really important things. But he says in verse 7 of this section about all of that, he says, whatever gains I had, I've come to regard them as what? Loss. That's a strong word because as a human, you're reading and you're going, well, these things aren't nothing. Surely that's not what he means. But in his mindset, he's like, these things compared to Christ, they fall to the side as less important. Now, there's a history uh, of an anti-Jewish reading of this text and how Paul was abandoning all those things because he thought they were bad uh, and abandoning all those things that were connected to who he was as a Jew and a per- as a person of faith. But this is not what's happening at all, and it should never be read in that sort of way. Paul's in no way devaluing that part of his life. He's putting it in its proper place, however, Because in other parts of the scripture, we see Paul talk about how proud he is to be a Jew. He's proud of his Jewishness. And there's no question that he continued in many of those practices that shaped who he was and his faith as well. What Paul is doing is he's just pressing the point that these things are not required in the economy of God's world. And that the community of Jesus is defined by things other than what we can do or what we've achieved in the story of our faith. Remember a couple Sundays ago, it was the parable of the workers in the vineyard and how the owner of the vineyard hired people in the morning, then he hired people at lunch, then he hired people in the afternoon, then he hired people at like four o'clock. Do you remember this story? And at the end of the day, when they all got paid, they all got paid the same. And everybody was happy about that. You see? You see how this all fits in? And, um, you know, the point Jesus makes with that parable is, hey, A, God can do whatever he wants to do with people when it comes to grace and mercy. And B, it's not your call. It's not what you do that garners the mercy and the grace and the presence of God in your life. It has more to do with who God is than what you can do with your person. Jesus reshaped Paul's Judaism. You can see this in some of his longer letters where he's reworking what he knows of God now based on his vision through the life of Jesus. Verse 8 is incredible. He says, more than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's a sweeping statement, but at the heart of what Paul is saying is this desire to simply know Jesus. That's it. The goal is to know Jesus. Now, this word know is not about knowing of someone but it is about an intimacy with someone. Uh, it is a, uh, any Seinfeld fans? Three, okay. Um, it's on Netflix, educate yourself, bring yourself up to speed. <laughs> but there's a whole trope in the Seinfeld world of like the yada, 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 remember that? Yeah, so this comes from like a playoff of the Hebrew word yada, which means to know. It's actually a sexual phrase, you know, that's the context in every Seinfeld episode. You know, we went upstairs and yada, yada, yada. This is where it comes from. 
And this word that Paul uses to know is rooted in the same kind of intimacy. That it's not just to know about someone or of someone, but to, to know, uh, to be in intimacy with someone. This is what's important to Paul. Not where he was born, not who he was born into as a family, not the tribe he came from, um, not that he speaks these languages, all those things. They matter, they're great, they have great value. But Paul's starting to see things differently. And Jesus reshaped what was important to Paul. And if there's an application here for us, and I'm not done, I'm just giving you a mid-sermon application. If there's an application here, it's that all of these achievements that we work towards in our lives and these privileges that we perhaps are born into that give us a sense of who we are, um, they will... Uh, serve their purpose. You know, they create an identity that we're trying to build of ourselves. But there comes a point in life where we begin to look back on these things that we've worked hard to achieve in life and in faith. And then we start to uh, live our lives as a commentary on those things. Like, what does that really mean? Is there a deeper meaning than just what I can do in the flesh? Is there something else going on in the soul? In his book, Falling Upward, I recommend it to anyone who's approaching middle age. Um, the Franciscan monk Richard Rohr wrote this book called Falling Upward, and it's basically about this. It's about the first half of our lives are often occupied intensely with developing our identity, accomplishing, achieving, becoming who we want to be. And then the second half of our life is when we begin to question those things, when we begin to think more deeply about what it means to be human. And for Paul, this meant knowing and intimacy with Jesus. Verses 10 and 11 are, are key here. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. What does that mean? It doesn't mean Paul wants to be crucified. But if Paul was martyred, and he was, it should be because he lived out the message of the grace and mercy of God for all people. This is what Jesus did too, the sacrificial giving of himself. And Paul says, I want to go down like that. Not kicking and screaming, but like Jesus, submitting. If somehow, he says, I may obtain the resurrection of the dead, this hope that he too would rise and what's happening is that Paul is talking about a shedding of the temporal for the more eternal. And if there is a church message that is a staple in every church building around the world, it's that. There's the things that we can manipulate and hold and create. And then there's the things that are beyond that. They're the eternal things. And all those things that Paul mentioned in his resume, they're all temporal. They will all die with him in the end. And so he says, if anyone has confidence in the flesh or reason to have confidence in the flesh, it's me. But he doesn't. He's released that. Now, the word flesh here is important. Um, in, in the New Testament, you see this Greek word, sarx. Isn't that great? That means flesh. And it's like 150 times you see this word. Paul uses it 90 times. It's very important to Paul. 
If I'm reading your writings as a teacher and you use a word 90 times, I'm going to go, this person is fixated on this word, right? So it's very easy to pick this up. And um, it means a lot of things. It means exactly what you think it means at the literal sense. The wooden reading of it is, of course, skin and bones. But when Paul speaks of it in terms of uh, who we are as people, it's most often used to describe humanity in its weaknesses, the limitations of what it means to be human, that we are not as humans capable of perfection. And the flesh is often associated with that, that if I put confidence in something that really is not going to produce the perfection that I want, it's kind of a letdown. The flesh is associated with things like the physical, the external, the things people see, the visible, the temporal. All of these things make up the identity that we're working to build during our lifetime. And when the scriptures use this term, it is most often about the limitations of being human and about the temporal economy of much of our efforts. But it's not something we often recognize until we've kind of reached the edges of our limits. In the Psalms, the poets speak of this too. I have two examples here. Psalm 63, Oh God, you are my God. Any 90s Christians here? It's a great song. Oh God, you are my God. I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's a statement of being at the end of your rope. In Psalm 73, the poet writes, my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Another recognition that these lives that we build, they can break. Amen? And the words of the poets are words about reaching the edge of the self that is emptying out. And at the edge of the self that is emptying out, we find the fullness of God. And one of the hardest journeys of faith is letting certain areas of pride and confidence fall away and to somehow discontinue the habit of trying to fill our souls with the temporal nature of the body and the flesh. Spiritual practices and the habits of faith, they're there to give us the eyes to see the eternal, not to become perfect, but to see what is perfect to see the hope of the resurrection and to discern whether we're putting too much weight on the physical and the external and the visible and the temporal. Sometimes we put too much weight on that scale. We think of ourselves as being able to handle these expectations. And if I had to summarize what Paul is saying in this entire passage, it would be this. And I want you to hear this. Your soul will never be perfected through your body through the works and achievements of your life. It will find its peace and its place from somewhere else. The great Jewish theologian Abraham Joshua Heschel speaks of um, the Sabbath in terms of time and space. And he uses this, these two words all the time in his writings about time and space. Time is about a holiness, a presence, Time for Heschel equals the presence of God, the eternal presence of God. Space is the stuff that we can make and manipulate and create in our lives. 
And he writes this in the Sabbath. He writes, the meaning of the Sabbath is to celebrate time rather than space. Six days a week, we live under the tyranny of the things of space. On the Sabbath, we try to become attuned to the holiness in time. It is a day on which we are called upon to share in what is eternal in time, to turn from the results of creation to the mystery of creation, from the world of creation, which is what we do, to the creation of the world. Why do you come to church? It's the same reason that Jews went to synagogue, to remember that we are temporal and that God is eternal. And to remember that we live in a world that is passing. And our lives too, they will pass. Why do we come into this building as a community? To remember that, to sing about that, to think about that, to pray for the strength to get through this life. The reformer Martin Luther, who I'm always anxious to quote because, uh, uh, I mean, the Luthers will have to rebrand at some point. Martin Luther said some pretty unwoke stuff back in the day. Um, but they're still hanging on to the word, you know? So uh, it really all depends on how much he was drinking when he was writing, just to be honest with you. But he did say some amazing things about his own understanding of himself. And one of my favorite lines from him is this. He writes, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. And that's the sermon. Every Sunday, that is the sermon. And around here, we take the gospel very seriously. But as I said at the beginning of the service, it's not wise to take yourself too seriously. Too much confidence in the self leads to all sorts of anxiety and shame. None of us can ever live up to our own expectations. Amen? So just let it go. I don't mean be like a loser, but I'm just saying... It's never going to satisfy completely. But there is something that lies beyond the self, beyond all that we can do and achieve, and that is the enduring presence of God and his grace and his mercy over us and the promise of life eternal when this one is over. And that is good news. Amen. There is the cruel moon coming in where you keep looking now. It is the hollow month of March now sweeping in. Let's watch phenomenon rise out of the darkness now. Within the light, she is my storm and heroine. An old machine abandoned by the ancient races stand. I hear them humming down below in hollow earth. Oh, hell, I guess I Just for now, I let the spring and storm return. I left my heart to the wild thunder coming. I live until the call. And I plan to be forgotten when I'm gone. Yes, I'll be leaving in the fall. Oh. And I will sleep out in the glade just by the giant tree. To be closer when I